This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the minefield. It's that time again where we do the book club thing that's not quite a book club. Uh, The first time we've done it for this year after we had a great deal of fun doing it last year. Not sure how you felt about it, but that's not what's important. What's important <laughs> is that we had a great time. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Waleed Ali is my name, and we're about to have a lot of fun today, Scott, because this was a cracking topic to mm. suggest. Look, uh, so here's our criteria for what it is that we're doing. We're not really doing books, although we're going to do some more books later. In Occasionally, the yeah. Um, we are trying to focus on, I think this is the best way of putting it, undisputed masterpieces of human cultural production, little gems, little works of art that suggest a degree of singularity. Can this thing ever be repeated? That suggest a degree of seriousness, even when they are uproariously funny. And by serious, I mean, there's a degree to which each of the things that we're looking at want to be taken seriously and try to invite a series of references outside of their own writing or outside of their own performances. In other words, these are things that are consciously made not just to be viewed, but to endure, to last. So there's, I don't think universality is the right term for it. No, definitely not. But In it's fact, n- particularity is often a very important part of these things. And I think for our topic today, particularity is definitely, incredibly yeah. important. Um, but these are also things that display a degree of literacy. These are things that are in dialogue with other pieces of writing, other films, political circumstances, cultural movements. I think one of the things, Willie, that was so interesting when we did, for instance, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner last year was the way that that particular film from 1967, the way that it interacts peculiarly with its political situation, with its geographical location in San Francisco, Um, But then within that context, there are all of these aesthetic devices that are at play. So you can watch it intelligently, but as soon as you begin thinking about how these aesthetic and dramatic devices bounce off the particular political and cultural geographical circumstances within which it's set, then all sorts of things begin pinging. So we're, we're not moralizing about these objects, whether they be books or films or television series or set list at a concert. Uh, we're not trying to moralise about it. Not so much the set list as the performance. Yeah. I mean, I the set right. list on its own, although I know you did put it in a valiant attempt to... I tried. It didn't work, an- did it? ...analyse Queen's set list at Live Aid. Oh, no, I didn't think it was a bad analysis. Okay. But it was more than the set list, of course. Of course it was. It was Yes, it was the event. It was all about... But so anyway. we're trying to see the peculiar way in which the singularity of the performance and the context within which the performance takes place, the way that they interact. And the purpose of that isn't for us to impose our moral ideals upon it and therefore evaluate is this character good or bad, but rather to, once we allow the fireworks, the sparks of this interaction between the aesthetic devices that are at play within the object itself and the context within which that object is set, once those sparks begin to kind of to bristle and shine, What can we see about ourselves? What can we see about the world? What can we see about the circumstances in which we find ourselves? And ultimately, maybe what can we discern about some of the shape and the character of our common life together? So today, today we're doing Faulty Towers, which... Can I say something about this? So Faulty Towers very famously only had 12 episodes made, Mm. two six-episode seasons. Feels like there are three. 29 and a half minutes per episode. I think they vary, though, because I was watching it on DVD. Uh, I went to the the last DVD hire place in the Southern Hemisphere, and I rented it. And I reckon there are some episodes that go to 32, Mm. 33, and there are some that go to 28. And I I say this not just as a matter of trivia. If that's true, because I was watching The Counter, and there's possibility of error with, you know, the way time coding works on a DVD. But if that's true, I think that's significant because... There's an element of these things being allowed to find their natural yeah, length. beautiful. Which you very often don't get. I mean, this was on the BBC, mm-hmm. and maybe the BBC allowed a bit more latitude in that because there's no ads and things like that. But in commercial television, for example, if you watch Seinfeld, I would be very surprised if there was much variance in the length of mm. 
of episode. Um, you get it a lot more in streaming services now because there is a certain flexibility that's allowed in that. But I just, I mean, I don't want to make a big deal of this, but I think it's something to mark because when you watch Faulty Towers after how many years, the thing that strikes you is that it's so dense and it's so expertly constructed. There is nothing superfluous mm. in there, really. Mm. Like I... If I went back with a notepad and watched it all again and tried to note a superfluous line or a superfluous scene or moment, I, there would maybe be three. Mm. And even then, I'm just exaggerating. Well, can I... Presumption. I'm so glad you said that, Willie. Can I just say I went back and re-re-watched all yep. the 12, as in like very recently over the last few days, with my yellow pad and created 37 pages of notes that I now have <laughs> stuck together. More or less. This is the difference between you and me. Yes, it is. <laughs> but what was so fascinating to me, I mean, if somebody had, before watching this more recently, if somebody had said, you know, give me a number of the characteristics about Faulty Towers. I mean, obviously the physical comedy. Yeah. Obviously the hurling of insults and the forms of kind of playful, but in some cases even kind of troubling violence. Uh, the certain tensions between classes and between genders. And, you know, th those are the things I wouldn't have said tightness of writing initially. But then going back and re-watching with a certain degree of attentiveness, you think there is not a squandered look. There is not mm. a squandered pause. So much so that during those moments of apex mania, let's just put it that way, when either the physical comedy that's going on, and here I think maybe of something like the kipper and the corpse, uh, yep. the person who has died in the room and the body is being shuttled around the hotel, um, to those moments of almost cacophonous mayhem at the end, for instance, of Waldorf salad, when oh. everybody is screaming at faulty. And to be honest, you could have picked any number of episodes. Exactly. So you have those yeah. moments of mania where... The writing is on top of one another. There's things that quite deliberately are not supposed to be understood or when Faulty is shouting at somebody. So, so you have those moments where it's like there's not a pause anywhere in sight. It's just this constant screed of language. And then you have, you realize those moments where all the attention is on his face. All the attention is on that moment of incomprehension from Manuel. All the moment is the sense of menace. Can I, can I tell you, incidentally, one of my favorite scenes? Uh, it was unspoken. I, actually, sorry, there was almost no speech. Um, Faulty is far more cultured than I remembered. It's a middle class cultured. But he refers, for instance, to Wittgenstein and Proust mm. and E.M. Forster. He yep. refers quite casually and listens avidly to the music of Brahms, Chopin, Beethoven, Mascagni's Cavalera Rusticata. So he has this kind of middle-class culture that I think is probably something like the product of the BBC, the idea of things that are excellent that have been made freely available to all. But he's also fiercely defensive of that culture, So, and he's disdainful of those who don't appreciate or share it. Uh, yes. So which, that which you see in the Gourmet episode. That's true. Where he publishes that advertisement, which we never actually get to see, but no. all we know is that he included in the advertisement in the no riffraff special night, no riffraff. Um, he's constantly talking about how terrible the clientele are that come, and then whenever someone comes that does have some status, like doctors, for example, remember in the, in the psychiatrist episode, there's a sort of obsequiousness about at least the way he starts. But I think we and need to we need to get to why to... We, we need to understand why he's fawning all over the upper classes, though. But anyway, yeah. go on. Well, but the, and this is the thing that I, I mean, when I first saw Faulty Towers, really, I was a kid. So none of this, you know, it was funny because the physical stuff and there's cream pies and, you know, there's all that sort of stuff. Oh, he hit Manuel again, you know, so you get a bit of that. And then the recurring lines, you know, he's from Barcelona, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And Manuel just has these lines that, it, you know, I can speak English, I learned it from a book while standing behind the moose head or mm. I know nothing, you know, all this. My favourite, sort of can I say my, my favourite from Manuel? What is mm. Witnit? <laughs> <laughs> yes, brilliant. There's just so much about um what I didn't appreciate, and which is so obvious the minute you start watching it as an adult, is how shot through with class the whole thing That's, is. Right. That's right. Because it's a reflection of British society, and I, I suspect, and I look forward to asking our guest about this, something very particular about the location, I suspect, of the hotel in connection with this, that it's not set in London, it could have been. The English Riviera, um, Waleed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
out west. It's a long drive from London. Which you, you realize also there. makes the entire thing absurd. The number of people and the class of people, the style of people that happen to come through this ridiculous hotel in the middle of nowhere at this far-flung southwest location. But that might also be why every time they come, it's an event. Yes, that's right. I mean, the Germans are coming. Or, you know, there was yes, well, hang on. Who came. So you get we all that. But can I there. just... There was one other thing I wanted to say about it, um, and I sort of got sidetracked. I, in preparation for this, binge-watched Faulty Towers. And can I just say that's a terrible way to watch it? Yes, it is. And I know that we... Well, I mean, I did that because I kind of had to. But it, it brings to mind something else for me that is true of so much really great writing or certainly television production, and that is that they aren't binge-watchable. Mm, that's right. Because what you need is the space to breathe from them. <laughs> there is something so breakneck, something so frustrating and irritating. I'm a nervous wreck after having watched like binge watch Faulty Towers, mm. because the emotion that it elicits in you is a constant frustration. It's a constant fingernails down the blackboard sort of feeling. Mm. And therein resides the humour. But it is perfectly pitched at half an hour a week. Watch this, go away, don't do, like have, have your rest <laughs> and then come back to it and be frustrated anew because it's unrelenting. Basil Fawlty never wins. You find yourself cheering for him, even though you can see it's this true. is not, not the greatest guy in the world. But there is a thing about frustrated aspiration and a, a, about dashed expectations, even almost dashed entitlement. I think Fawlty feels entitled to something because of his work, yeah, because of point. of his diligence, yes. or what he thinks might be his diligence. He is disdainful of those who won't work. That's very clear. I mean, constantly disdainful of socialism, which keeps coming up. Yes. But this is part of his disdain who's... for Sybil, incidentally. Oh, okay. I'll we're awfully, we're awfully busy that. here, darling. Yes. Are you getting a good little rest there, dear? Yes, because she, and she's the, a fascinating character, isn't she? Because she's almost never working. And then in about three seconds, we'll achieve what Basil can't achieve. That's right. That's right. Whole, so she's obviously, the women in the show are the competent ones. Mm-hmm. Polly is diligent and he has no problem with Polly. He has a problem with Sybil because of, you know, standard husband-wife comedy tropes. Okay, well, sorry, pause there for a moment. I did just want to say what this favourite scene of mine is, briefly, which was the unspoken scene, which is the two of them, this is in the wedding party episode, the two of them lying in bed together. Uh, She's reading a magazine. What's it called? I forget what it's called. It's it's women's it's, something. I no, no, no. It's like sexy humor. Oh, is it? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. It is. And he's reading. So this is, he makes reference to. By the sca- way, in two single beds separated. Two single beds, which, and, and the whole politics surrounding two single beds and unmarried people not being able to be in the same room. And the yeah. references to homosexuality, interestingly, are just, yeah. anyway. So she's reading sexy humor and he's <laughs> reading Peter Benchley's 1974 bestseller, Jaws. Yes. Which, given the series of ways that he refers to her, from my golfing little puff at her, <laughs> I won't go on with the others, to the constant menace. I mean, the best, the greatest pauses, I think, aren't just Basil's bewilderment in the face of, I've told a lie, how can I get my way out of it? But it's his fear in response to her look of unrelenting menace. I came to the conclusion from the show. So, so him reading Jaws next to her, I just found unbelievably funny and almost and quite contrary to his character in some respects. In other words, the book itself is meant to be a joke. That's, that's not really the way that his tastes run in terms of literature. But I, I was overwhelmed, Waleed, by just how important... Sybil is for the way that the entire show works. So Basil is obviously motivated by a sense of threat from without. And I think we need to sort of identify and talk about those threats soon. He's, he's driven by this sense of things in decline or things changing in a matter that he doesn't quite understand. And he wants to keep those things at bay. But then there's also that constant marital threat from within mm. 
um, which almost always has to do with sort of some indiscretion on his part or his desire to do something or to not have to do something. But I think you're right that it, that it all revolves around his manic work, which ultimately is work for the sake of work. It's not work for the sake of aspiration. It's not work for the sake of productivity. For some bizarre reason that I think we can get to later that I have a thesis about, work is everything to him. And Sybil lives in a very in a pronounced way to try to find ways of escaping from work. And for her, that's usually sort of friendship, being on the phone, consorting with guests in the dining room and so on. Hmm. But do you think it's work purely for the sake of work? I do. Ah, I, it's funny. I don't. I'd have now. I have to go back and watch it again. Well, no, I work don't... work because of the inherent value of work. This is what it means to be English. So you remember the scene, for instance, when yeah. again, this is with this is with the wedding party, which is such a. It's an episode I don't like in many ways, but it's also incredibly significant. I think where he's he's made a mistake, and Sybil tells him, "Just admit your mistake." And he mm. says, you want me just to go and admit a mistake? That's not what made Britain great. I'm Basil mm. Fawlty and I made a mistake. So there's, yeah. this, there, there's this kind of... Um, there's a lot of we didn't win the war with... Yes, you know, yes. So there, there, yeah. there's a kind of, there's a, a diligence, there's an industriousness, there's a work ethic without a clear sense of what that work ethic is meant to achieve. And so his constant references so, to strikes, 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 people, yeah. you know, layabouts on conveyor belts. Uh, and so you, I think you need to ask, if work is the substance of his life, then where does his pleasure come? For, See, I, I don't think of his work as being for its own. So I, I think it's directed at something. And that is, he buys into that that overarching narrative of life, that you apply yourself, you work hard, you be good, that is, you know, be the right kind of person, not riffraff, et cetera, mm. and you attain success, respect. And so I think he's after respect in a lot of cases, right? This is, he seems so, to spend so much of his time throughout the series trying to keep up appearances for particular people. Mm-hmm and win the approval of certain people. Then there's other people he, whose approval he doesn't seek at all, and he's, he would regard himself as superior to them. But I think it's directed to something. There's something about social status. There's something about achievement. There's something about it. It's not aimless work. It ends up being aimless because he's, he's so often wrong about things. But there aren't that many times, I'd say there were a handful of times throughout the two series, where I'm saying, why are you doing that? You don't have to, you could just go in and explain the situation. It would be fine. Yes. Um, so there are a handful of but times But it really that, is keeping up appearances, the importance of saving is. face. Yes. And that's a separate thing from work for the sake of work. No, I disagree. Really? Why? Okay. So it's not just him who's saving face. In a very real way, by saving face, okay, I know this is going to sound weird. Bear, yep. bear with me. He's trying to do his own little bit for the protection of Englishness that is under threat, that is in decline. So you've got yeah, the constant references to Empire, to Gladstone, Agincourt, Earl Haig. Uh, you've got his little, his, his ridiculous penny collection, his coin collection that you get introduced to in the very first episode. So... The idea is there are all of these things that these are they're cultural threats. So you see this, I think, most peculiarly in both the wedding party episode and in the psychiatrist's episode. There are these uh, changes in sexual mores that yep. he th- doesn't quite understand, that he's trying to get his head. I mean, he's quite prudish himself. But his resistance to these things isn't just small C conservative. In a very real way, it's also to some extent kind of capital C conservative. He's trying to, he, he wants to maintain something that he sees great value in. And so he sees threats without from strikers. Uh, there's a brief reference in the Germans episode when he's having his famous rant at the fire extinguisher to Harold Wilson, the labor Prime Minister. Remember, yeah. you know, where he says, you know, the fire extinguisher does nothing on the wall until the moment you need it, then it blows uh, yep. your, your head off. What's going wrong with this country? It's all bloody Wilson. 
So this yeah. idea of things in decline, and the only thing that can re not reverse the decline, but can hold the line, if you like, is by working. And so the, is that your is that your explanation of the Germans episode? Uh, not quite. Because there's one thing I noticed in that, which is probably the most famous episode. If people know nothing about Faulty Towers, they'll they know, know the don't mention the war. Yeah. Right? They'll know that, that line. One thing I just noticed for the first time watching it now is his reference to the, the European market. That's right. We're on the continent now. And, you know, this but sort of... not just a reference to the European market, also a reference to to the European Union referendum of 1975. Yeah. So he Even says... that episode would have been, what, the second series? That was years later, no, wasn't it? No, 70... no, no, no. It was, it was 1975. And he even returns it? to it in the 1979 series where he says, I didn't vote for it myself, namely inclusion in the single market in the European yeah. Union, but I'm determined to make the best of it. Yeah. Did yeah. you also... And so his relationship with the Germans is fraught for that reason, right? So they... They're now part of the single market, but for him, they're the people that we vanquished in the war. That's right. And so he's, I mean, I know he's concussed at the time, which I think is part of the joke, but the fact that he can't stop mentioning it and it just gets more and more ridiculous until you get the walk at the end. That's right. But um, can I, can I give my little spin on the concussion? Yeah. You've got this old trope in 1940s and 50s Hollywood films where uh, alcohol consumption and drunkenness leads central characters into certain forms of trouble, but it also has the effect of enabling them to drop their carefully constructed guards and to finally mm. tell the truth so that alcohol right. can become a wisdom bringer, not by distorting speech, but by lowering inhibitions. I think that's what's going on with the concussion. What but the problem with that analysis yeah. is that everything up to that in the concussion shows that he doesn't know who he's talking to and he keeps saying absolutely ridiculous things. So I don't know how you would square those two. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think, I mean, when, for instance, he refers to Eva Prawn um, and says that, you know, he'll bring out the hors d'oeuvres, which will be... <laughs> yeah, what yeah. does he say? That? Obeyed. Which will be or obeyed at all times. <laughs> yeah. All I'm saying is, I think what that's capturing is that... I'm putting in the context of your observation about change and his attitude to change. Yes. And this is a very big change, a changing relationship with the Germans, the changing relationship of what it means to be English with respect to Germany. Mm. Almost a handover from the, the, the era of, you know, the war and having vanquished the Germans to now having to be their allies or at least their friends. Mm. And they suddenly they turn up in his hotel and all they want is food and he's constantly parading them about this thing from a past that perhaps he's trying to latch on to. Yeah, but, um, but that, the very that, precise idea there, the precise idea there is that the free market can only, and the lure of the free market can only get so far. But when you scratch the surface, when you really dig down mm -hmm. into people's psyche, which the concussion reveals, beneath there are these visceral hostilities that can never quite be overcome. Can I just mm -hmm. mention one other? I'm sure it's a, it's a political reference. I mean, this is one of the fascinating things to me, Walid. The number of geopolitical references here I mean, Henry Kissinger, for instance, is named three times over the course. Oh, he won't stop with Kissinger. It's hilarious. And, and of course, we got the background of Vietnam, Vietnam ending in 1975. It's actually quite, it's quite fascinating. There's a brief reference to the wife of the, of the recently deceased president, uh, referring to Mrs. Johnson, namely you know, Lyndon B. Mm. But you've also got the brief reference. I'm not sure if you picked it up. I didn't pick it up until I watched it this latest time. Uh, in the anniversary episode... He's tormenting, Basil is tormenting Sybil with the belief that he's forgotten their anniversary. Yes. Uh, Polly can't understand it. She's saying, you know, wh why are you being so cruel? Wouldn't it be? And he's obviously taking peculiar relish in the cruelty. Mm. And she says, wouldn't it be easier to boil her in oil? And he says, yes, but it wouldn't be as economical. And then later in the same episode, when the guests, who are all obviously in various states of being beaten and broken as a result of a kind of fateful <laughs> encounter with a pseudo-Sybil uh, who's convalescing in her room, um, he offers to, to refund their petrol costs. Mm. Clear reference, Willie, to the 1979 oil shock. So I, I, I think you've... Except you've got... he does it facetiously. 
Of course he does it facetiously, but but when this is in the social political ambiance. I mean, you remember how seismic the oil shock of 1975 was? I mean, this was no, catastrophic. No, I don't remember it because I was born after it's gone. <laughs> no, you were. I've only read about it in places. Okay, anyway. Yeah, no, I, yes, I understand. Can I just ask you what, one question mm. before we bring in our guest? So there's a lot of talk about a reboot. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, I'm not sure I do either. Why don't you? Um, because it's going to have to be woke or anti-woke. Because It'll be the latter, given John Cleese's... Of course it will. Of course it will. Proclivities, yeah. Sorry, when I say it's going to be woke, it's going to be defined by... Yeah, it'll... Yes. It, in contradistinction that the reference to point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would have thought, I would have thought, before re-re-watching it, that the thing that mostly makes Faulty Towers work is the fact that it's farce, the importance of the physical comedy, the importance of the contrasts. You know, a ridiculously tall man, these yeah, cramped, very cramped confines. Space. Yeah, in, in a ridiculous place in the middle of nowhere, relatively speaking. Yeah. The more I watch it, Waleed, I, I can't get over how much the humor is, I wouldn't exactly say dependent upon, but how much it relies upon the particular frisson of the circumstances of the late 1970s. There's a degree to which the sense of political and social upheaval, the sense of the defense of Britishness, these things are incredibly important for the way that the humor works and that give the humor a certain edge and that propel the narrative energies, the fear about change, the fact that Faulty does not understand the world increasingly that he's living in. These are the things that kind of drive that. And the fact that they were able to devote something like six weeks to the writing of every episode. Which, which is why it's so tight, by the way. That's exactly right. I, yeah. I, I just don't see how any of these things can be reduplicated. But also, Willie, you're not going to have an 80-year-old John Cleese being able to carry mm. off the same physical humor, which... I mean, for someone that tall, what does is, what is Sybil refer to him as? An aging, brilliantine stick insect. <laughs> That's right. That is, that's central to his kind of physical agency throughout the show. I don't see it working. What about you? I don't I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Mm. But maybe they just change, I mean, maybe physical comedy isn't part of it, or maybe it's a different kind of physical comedy. Or I, don't, I actually, I'm not sure it'll happen. I think it's one of those things that gets announced or floated, but I don't know that it ever actually arises. Yeah. Anyway, Maybe. we'll see. Indeed. Uh, ben Wellings is Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Monash University, a long-standing fan of Faulty Towers. And I'm, I'm reliably informed, Ben, that you even celebrated the fact that you were joining us to do this show by engaging in a bit of ethnic haute cuisine uh, <laughs> before coming on the show. Have I gotten that right? Hello. Uh, this is a reference to my breakfast during the sound check. I was, uh, yes. uh, you know, standard question. But uh, as it by chance, I had an English muffin for breakfast. <laughs> but which, purely by chance? Well, maybe not by chance. You know, maybe it's not something I have every day, but maybe that's not the same as by chance. Yes. Know? But uh, Scott was very amused by that. Yes. I was. Yes. I was. Okay. So, Ben, we've, let me throw something to you, which we've not really gone anywhere near yet. And I think this is going to be the perfect place for you to take off. So there are these strange references to Torquay, to Britain more generally, now being part of the continent, now being part of Western Europe, as uh, I think Mr. Hamilton in the, Ameri in the Waldorf Salad episode calls him. And Faulty himself has this rolling series of encounters with certain nationalities and ethnicities, Irish, French, Greek, Spanish, German, Australian, American, even Gambian. I don't know if the two of you sort of registered the startled look that Faulty has on his yeah. face when he's leaving Sybil's room uh, and he's met by Dr. Finn, who's a, a Gambian-born British actor, Lewis Mahoney. Um, and then, you've, of course, you've got all the, quote-unquote, Mediterranean-type avatars um, who are variously referred to as orangutans or chimpanzees, Neanderthals with sloping foreheads, people who are... Uh, in the thrall of passions, unlike uh, Faulty, who is in the, I mean, clearly, obviously, in possession no, never of full reason. never in the thrall of his passions. No. <laughs> so it's unavoidable that you've got these confrontations with what is not English. And this seems, it seems to me, to heighten at every moment the centrality of Faulty's 
Englishness, not just as a kind of a funny little thing or an incidental quirk or a contingent element to the show, but in some crucial respects as central, a kind of central narrative driver for the show's rolling series of conflicts itself. What do you make of this? Well, yes, I mean, it's it's very much of its time, isn't it, as you two have been discussing, and, and it's very much of its place. So I think you're right to pick up on this notion of Torquay. And I should say, when I was nine, I went there on holiday, so I'm, I'm now drawing from... It's the lived experience I'm yeah, drawing well. on. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's part of that kind of faded glory. So if you want to drive the, the analogy of the faded glory, um, it fits into those narratives of decline which really gripped the ruling classes in Britain uh, and became a sort of a standard trope and actually lays some ground for the, for the arrival of Thatcher in 1979, which, of course, the second series um, straddles that, or is actually during that election campaign. So, you know, like the, the thing that I like about that is, is that all that list of characters that you've, you've suggested, they're basically two categories, aren't there? There's Europe and there's Empire or Anglosphere. Mm, right. So, you know, Australians get a Guernsey, and obviously Americans loom large with Connie Booth, one of the co-writers, and, and Polly is kind of, if you pick up on her accent, she mm. has sometimes that American accent. And then there's the Waldorf salad episode, which juxtaposes the Americans with their customer service expectations with British unionism mm. uh, and low expectations of customer service. And, and so you should say, Polly's an interesting figure for yes. her cosmopolitanism because yes. she's always speaking different languages and well, this is part of her. So she represents, I think, the the bridge or the, the comfort with that sort of emerging new world. Yeah, she's like kind of new Britain, if you want to call yeah. it that. That's right. And of course, you know, what sets up the episode with the Germans and the interaction towards the end is, as you've mentioned, Basil's concussion. But that comes because a moose head has fallen on him. Yes. And, you know, that, that now that's a kind of Canadian symbol. If you, we could read that as a kind of a collapse of empire, literally onto the head of Basil Fawlty. <laughs> you're be like, you know, and then when Manuel starts to, I'm just laughing and think about it, but like, you know, when Manuel starts to speak from behind the moose's head, you've yeah. got the Europe and empire kind of, actually confused and uh, mixed up in that important way. And two major. This is the thing. He's talking behind the moose head and major... Right. ..who is the ultimate embodiment of that sort of old empire. Absolutely. So major is the Colonel Blimp character. I don't yes. know if that yeah, makes any right. sense. Yes. But, like, you know, he's he's the sort of, you know, the, the type that would be apoplectic that uh, Britain has given India away and, you know, all those kind of things. And, uh, and, and so, sorry, and can I say, an irascible racist... Mm. Yes. Except when it comes to cricket. Although the, even then. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 yes. I mean, there's the famous exchange, which we're not going to go over in the German episode. But yeah. his very first exchange with Faulty. Good old Dolly got another century. Uh, boycott, yeah. Oh, is it? No, no, boycott's later. It's, yes, it's, it's Basil Dolivera. Yeah. So there's this clear, there's a place for ethnicity in the UK, as long well, as they're in on Major's the... world, but it's within Empire. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's, I, yes. I, I, he's that's like right. the Enoch Powell kind of that's character. Right. Ma Major's bringing those kind of ideas in, but he is seen as a figure of fun. I mean, it's a kind of a, almost a. It's not a senility, is it? But it's it um, is senility. It is almost. Senility. Yeah. So it's definitely like the Empire is supposed to be something that is old and has happened and is no longer. The direction that Britain is going in, mm. the direction is Europe, but of course, then there's the these Europeans are also either figures of fun or have somehow inverted that order that you were talking about, Scott. That in the German episode, I don't want to labour that one too much, but in the German episode, Britain won the war but lost the peace, and so the Germans are now, or the West Germans, I should say, mm. the West Germans are now top of the economic tree, mm. uh, you know, how did this happen? And just that sense of drift and decline and, and all those things permeate, I think, both the series. They're really important context for the humour uh, and the things that Basil can say or can't say, given the geopolitical context of the time. And the frustration of that. And the frustration. Him. His frustration even that he has to deal with Manuel. Mm -hmm. There's a reference in one of the episodes to basically a labour shortage. This is what... You can't get local help anymore, so I have to get Manuel. And I wonder what you think of the Manuel character because he's, he's outrageously popular. 
everyone loves Manuel, even though he's clearly at the bottom of the food chain. A lot of the humour that surrounds him is to do with not understanding the language. Some of it suggests that he's not all that bright. But then there are moments where he actually seems quite bright. And I, as I was watching, I was kind of tracking Manuel, and I didn't know in the end precisely how I was meant to feel about it. I knew how I felt about him, but I didn't know precisely what I was meant to feel. Do you think, as a symbol of the continent, is he a sympathetic character? Uh, that's a good question. He's very loved, isn't he? He is, by everyone, except Basil, really. Yeah, and the audience. But at the same time, of course, he's a figure of fun. So is it possible that he is loved because he is a figure of fun? If he was a serious character, he'd be more threatening. But he can be somehow put somewhere that, well, I mean, who's the audience? I mean, you know, mm. we've all watched this in Australia and that people understand the cultural resonances. So we could say, it was it for a British audience initially and then became more popular or whatever? Um, but, you know, that, that the background of Franco, to, I mean, the background well, of Franco say, here is actually you know, quite like, important. Yeah, so so that's changing at the moment. So another thing that's going on in Western Europe is, of course, is that the the Spanish and Portuguese fascist regimes are collapsing. That's right. In those very years. So between the two episodes in 75 and 79, you would have seen in Spain, and actually, of course, he's Catalan, but that doesn't, you know, be, mm. well, he's from Barcelona. I don't know if he's from yeah, Catalan. Well, he, he, says, could be, he says Barcelona at I some does, point. He does, like with that <laughs> Spanish, yeah. that Castilian inflection. Um, but at any rate, I think that, there's changes going on in Western Europe. So the American character in Waldorf Salad is is right, you know, that this is about Western Europe. It's not about all of Europe at the moment because we're still in that Cold War context. But, uh, yeah, I th- I think that he might be loved because because he's not too threatening. Mm. You know, he's not like the Germans. You know, where, where the Spanish aren't in the Second World War, so you can't... Uh, there's no inversion that's taken place that seems to frustrate Basil Fawlty in terms of the relationship between Britain and Germany. There's and no grudge. There's just a sneer. No. Do you know what's not there? You know, one of the English attitudes towards Spain, if we go back to the 19th century and even the Spanish Civil War, are about Catholicism. There's very little religion yeah, in that's right. those series, which is interesting, isn't it? Like, mm. that just doesn't seem to feature. So, yeah, I, I think that Spain is not a threat to... English and British identity yeah. in the way that Germany can I, is. Can I, can I get a slightly different spin on Manuel? Because I think one of the things that is interesting, and again, I, I picked them up more this time. Now, I don't know if I was looking for them. I was just more attentive to it. The number of references to people belonging in zoos or people being monkeys or orangutans or Neanderthals. Um, you've got it most prominently, of course, in the Builders episode I won't repeat some of the things that are said about the Irish, but I mean, you, you can see that this isn't a reference to the Troubles. This is a reference to, to compete. I mean, this is Orwell's uh, prejudicial vision of the Irish, for instance. So, I mean, the builders are knuckle draggers. Uh, they are incompetent. They are lazy. They are stupid. Um, I think it's the very next episode. Is it? Is in the wedding party, or is it even in that same builders episode? At one point, Basil is walking. Manuel and Manuel is walking quite visibly like a small chimpanzee. Um, uh, you've got the same references to the quote-unquote Mediterranean types, as Sybil refers to them. They are passionate. They are maybe not overly smart, but they've got this kind of this uh, these all these little trinkets and references to the continent, um, which Sybil loves and Basil hates. Which and Sybil, Sybil is loves, teasing Basil for his. So she's kind of. Castigating. Castigating is too strong a word, but you know what I mean. Well, no, it is because Basil is not erotic. I mean, he is he is a an entirely asexual character on the show, even in the most compromising uh, with the, as with the French situation guest. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Right. So, I mean, he's he's prudish. He's prudish. I think. That, so it seems to me that what Manuel, Manuel is part of this continuum of human beings which are, you've got British on the one side, which are logical and industrious and hardworking. And then you've got the indolent and you've got the passionate. Um, but every step you take away from the British, or sorry, more properly, the English, you're dealing with lower beings. And so you've actually got the reference in the second season where uh, Faulty says uh, about the Spanish, I don't know how they ever managed an armada. So so you've, you've got this kind of bewilderment how anybody but the British could win the war, but also those traits of Britishness that enabled Britain to win the war. And that thing contributes to, I think, an, 
and invariable, but ultimately kind of a farcical, ridiculous notion of desperately held on to British supremacy. There's also a cultural context to this, which would affect Basil Fawlty directly, which is the growth of holidays in the Mediterranean. Yes, mm, so right. you could brilliant. you could get, of oh, course, uh, we start to get charter flights. Yeah. This is you know this is prior to the, the kind of cheap flights that we see in Europe now. But you would basically, if you could get enough people together, uh, you could bring the price of hiring a plane down and then fly to Benidorm or wherever you wanted to go. Mm. So English people are being exposed more and more to Mediterranean types or ways or whatever you know. Like, and of course, then they're not going to go to Torquay. Mm. So why would you, you know, why would you drive? You know, we know it takes from from one of the episodes about, you know, five hours to drive from London. You're not going to do that if you can then actually have some sunshine and and the the wonderful guest who turns up and complains about the view. Yes. You know, and it's, well, what did you expect, madam? You know, herds of wildebeest. You know, <laughs> the hanging gardens of Babylon. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all, all this kind of like, you know, transposes the, the normality and banality of a small English seaside town with the possibilities opening up for seeing the world. And the quid pro quo is that visitors from the continent or the United States come to him, but they're not necessarily the ones he wants. Right, OK. <laughs> so he so, kind of yes. loses yeah, yeah. from that whole exchange. He does, doesn't he? And, and of course, you know, that, that, that's the, the dynamic, isn't it? You put a misanthrope in hospitality and see what unfolds. But, OK. Um, OK, so to both of you, who does Faulty want at the hotel and why? Uh, isn't it obvious? Doesn't he want respectable, well-to-do English people who live properly? The same people that he wants to fawn over, the same people he wants to impress. They're the people, they're the clientele he wants. Until they fail to show his establishment the respect that it deserves. And I think you're right, Ben, that in many respects that establishment itself, its very decrepitude, represents a kind of England that he's trying to prop up. So, for mm. instance, you've got uh, at the end of the Touch of Class episode where he refers to uh, you know, Sir Richard and Lady Morris as they're driving off, you stupid, stuck-up, toffee-nosed, half-witted, mm. uh, upper-class piles of pus. So, I mean, you've, you've got a degree of... It's not envy, though. He wants a certain clientele. No, he's, well, been, he's been shut out. Yeah, I've got a different answer. I don't think he wants anyone at his hotel. Oh, right. I mean, well, so, well I, no, th sorry, that can't be the case because, just to go back to a point that I didn't finish earlier, his joy, I mean, his life is work. The number of references to holidays or lack of holidays, to work, the con constantly, and his, his unwillingness, his inability to get away from work. Where doesn't mean he wants the people, though, Scott. No, he does because his enjoyment is the misanthropy itself. There's that reference oh, where he's okay. standing He's standing in the kitchen. Excuse me, have I, have I become invisible? Can anybody see me? Yeah, yeah. And he makes a quick reference. Oh, I might as well ha go have a nap then. No, I might go and kick some guests. So when in his fantasy world, when confronted with the possibility of either getting some rest or inflicting pain... <laughs> But I think this I makes Ben's point. Yeah, I don't know I that he enjoys you. that. I don't know that he actually enjoys that, or does he just do it? I mean, and there's, <laughs> there's also an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, like, there's a whole episode about a psychiatrist. Yes. And uh, Such a Cleese, Cleese is also actually quite interested in psychology and uh, in the 90s sort of collaborates around that. And he's also said in, you know, when he was some interviews about some of the sexual dynamics in Faulty Towers that he's assuming that Basil and Sybil have not had sex in many, many years. Yeah. And he's not completely asexual. Remember the, the, the episode with the Australian woman? He mm. kind of develops a crush on this Australian woman, doesn't he? And, and mm. he ends up, that's where the stick insect quote comes from, right? But, yeah. But, but, I, Sybil, but I think Sybil is attributing that to him. The most that he does is look down, well, look at her necklace. Let me just put it that way. So he's not guilty of the things that Sybil thinks he's guilty of, but there is nonetheless this sort of he wants kiddishness. But, like, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. no, no, what, what makes that episode work is the fact that he happens to keep seeing her, groping her, uh, having inappropriate uh, consort with her, whereas the entire time what he's trying to do is uphold middle-class yes. British values by exposing the woman who's in... The other room yeah, is not the next room. Who shouldn't yeah. be there? Yeah. yeah, but but I do think I do think like he still would ideally not like any guests at all, right? So one one of the quotes that is supposed to be based on an actual character, an actual hotelier. Yeah, sorry, that's right. um, 
you know, one of the one of the kind of like in jokes of the industry, I suppose, is you know this would be a great job if it wasn't for all the guests. And I think that that's mm. you know one of the the things that motivates him. I, I'm really interested in what you've picked up on work, though, Scott. I mean, it's so Protestant, isn't it? And yet it's, com- it's never stated. No. Never stated, but the whole like work ethic and you do good works and that's the meaning of life. And So I think I'm, I'll stick to the idea that he would ideally have no guests. Yes, and, mm. he, and he references the siesta as well as a kind right. of, in a way that's quite dismissive. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, there is something there. I Listening to both of you pull threads out of this show... Something struck me, and that is that the politics of the show aren't overly clear. Mm. The politics of Basil you can discern, the politics of Polly perhaps you can discern, Sybil and so on. And I use politics here in a broad sense, even to do with social attitudes and so on, as well as party politics. So does the show work so brilliantly and survive so long precisely because there isn't a clear political target what there is, is as the whole show is farce, different political positions are shown in a farcical mm, light that's right. such that kind of everyone's in the gun. It's kind of bringing everyone together to be lampooned at once without having a very clear direction of punching, if you like. And if you accept that as, as an analysis, I wonder if that's actually the great lost art in the way that we do comedy is to do comedy that actually puts everyone on the same footing rather than which picks people that it wants to elevate and people that it wants to denigrate. Mm. That, that's a really good question. I, I might just go straight to the party politics a bit. I mean, because what, what we know, said in the southwest of England, and that, that is a stronghold for the um, centrist party of the time, what was called the Liberals, it became the Liberal Democrats uh, in the 1980s. And John Cleese, the, one of the, co, obviously the co-writer, was actually very involved later on with the Liberal Democrats. But at the same time, Basil Fawlty does kind of complain about the Labour Party and yeah. he is situated in the middle, isn't he? So he's, he's sort of... Is he a Tory? I think uh, he's, he's probably a Tory, but, on, but on, at the on same the time, that's not clear, is it? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you would guess that. So I, I guess Cleese the writer is lampooning, mm. though, at that stage, the Conservative voter, right? Yes. Uh, At the same time as he's giving them a certain voice. Well, that's right. And it's just, it's a bit the same with the majors, you know, speech, yeah. isn't it? Like that, you know, you can sort of say, well, that's funny, but it's also being said. and Or yeah. it's not funny, but it's being lampooned, but it's also being said, right? Yeah. So I think that, yes, it does seem to, to try and lampoon everyone at some particular stage, doesn't it? And I think maybe that's probably what are my misgivings about a remake would, I don't think it would be as... Broad church is that perhaps it it's would probably hard to do now. Well, well, yeah. Well, I mean, there is, is our environment more polarized, mm. and therefore there actually isn't a ground in which you can bring this. Pretty polarized in the seventies, though. I mean, yeah, we yeah. might want to say that in a uh, different sort of a way, though. I look. I don't really remember it, and but and having read about it in books, I mean, it didn't seem there were other structures that were kind of keeping things yes. together that didn't make it seem. You know, you could put that polarization into class politics and political parties. and But at the now, you know, we just kind of like blurt it out on various forms of social media. There is one curious thing that we're missing here, which for John Cleese himself is central to the entire comic structure of the show. And that's the name of one of the episodes, Communication Problems. Anybody who knows anything about the show, they would know John Cleese's peculiar gait they would know the difficulties of Manuel being able to communicate or understand the people around him. Mm. Um, So you you have that as a, let's call it a multicultural problem. But then you've got the figure of Alice Richards, who, the woman with the hearing aid. Mm. And again, I didn't quite understand the significance of her as a figure until you begin recognizing, okay, Basil Fawlty himself is an inveterate liar. I'm not sure how... Uh, egregious it is. I mean, he's a he's a prodigious liar, but he's not often trying to use it for nefarious ends. It's more to try to get himself out of trouble. Yeah. But then you realize that part of the claustrophobia of the show is you've got all these people in a shared space, all of them demanding different things, all of them needing mm. certain things. You've got a central person in the middle of it who is far too impatient to deal with all of that. And it ends up being everybody kind of talking past one another, not really 
communicating with one another in the sense of meeting together in a common space or for some common task. And I just wonder if, I mean, that's one of the ways in which the polarity of the late 1970s is being expressed, the beginning of the decline of the conditions of meaningful political speech itself, and therefore the ability to really understand one another. The number of times Basil Fawlty says, you know, I don't particularly understand it myself. It is usually in the context of sort of sexual mores. Um, but there's something about incomprehension and mutual incomprehension that isn't just a gag. It's not just a joke. It also seems to me to be part of almost the political and epistemological heart of the uh, of the entire. Right. So is that the overriding comment then that the show's making, Ben? Well, I, look, I, that's the first time I've thought about it like that. But yes, I mean, what if Faulty Towers, the hotel, is a metaphor for Britain? Mm. I mean, one thing that strikes me that is quite absent there, with the exception of one or two characters, is black and Asian people. They're they're not really in it. And I think any consideration of, you know, multiculturalism in, in Britain in the 1970s would really probably need to start there, you know, mm. before we got to kind of Europeans. So it's it's kind of interesting that there are lots of Europeans, but very few black and Asian characters. Um, would it have been hard to introduce them, though, in a hotel on the possibly Riviera. yeah yeah it's it's sort of like the midsummer murders kind of situation isn't it where you know there just aren't black and asian faces and which does some actually of that make... actually reflects the demographics of those smaller mm. places but yeah which does make the presence of a gambian doctor very mm. interesting i think because, yeah, I mean, because it's not remarked upon really at no all. it's not it's just, it sort of happens yeah, yeah. It sort of it sort of seems like it's just normal but, yes no. yes but you're supposed to take it you're supposed to notice it because of the startled look in Basil's eyes when he steps into the hallway and is suddenly, from his perspective at least, accosted. Yeah, but then nothing else. He has no problem with the doctor. The doctor remains an authority figure in the way a doctor mm, would be. That's right. Other than that particular moment, there is nothing remarkable about yeah. his character. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I sort of expect, well, why isn't the nurse, you know, from the West Indies, yeah. you know, which might be a more... But you're right. I think he's the only black character in the... That's you know, right. But he is made an authority figure in the way Manuel isn't. Mm. I um, guess we have to reconvene if they do this remake. I do fear for it. Do you think mm. it'll happen, Ben? Do you think reconvene in 30 years' time? When well, it's like still going. <laughs> possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Maybe. Yeah. Well, I don't think John Cleese has 30 years to make this one. I don't think you'll have to do it fairly quickly. Ben, it's so great having you in. It was good fun, and I'm really glad we chose you to have this conversation with Ben Welling, Senior Lecturer in Politics, International Relations at Monash University. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield, the Not Quite a Book Club or whatever it is we call it, we'll do another one sometime soon and we'll have another show next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.